Hello, I am Vicky Murillo. I'm the director of the Institute for Latin American Studies at Columbia University. I'm also a political science professor in the Department of Political Science and the School of International and Public Affairs. I'm your host in this podcast series called Latin America at Columbia University. This is the first episode of the series, which will introduce our audience to the faculty and researchers working on Latin America at Columbia University. The podcast will talk about their work and how they contribute to our understanding of Latin America from different perspectives and disciplines. We are starting this series with a conversation with Ana Maria Ochoa. Ana Maria Ochoa is both a professor at Columbia University and she's originally from Colombia, the country, so she's a Colombia at Columbia. <laughs> um, Ana Maria Ochoa is an ethnomusicologist in the Department of Music and she's currently the chair of the department and she's affiliated with the Center for Ethnicity and Race. She was born and raised in Colombia, educated in Canada and the United States, and she teaches here, although she also has worked at Columbia. Ana Maria has published widely in both English and Spanish on music, on cultural policy, on forced silence and armed conflict, as well as on genealogies of listening and sound in Latin America and the Caribbean. Currently, she's exploring bioacoustics of life and death through the colonial histories of the Americas. Welcome, Ana Maria. It's a pleasure to have you as our first guest. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and I didn't know I was opening the series, so it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. Your field ethnomusicology seems to combine the kind of the ethnographic dimension of anthropology with the substantive interest in music. For those of us who really are not from the field, can you really explain to us what is ethnomusicology? It's what you just said. It's a combination of a history of uh, ethnographic inquiry with the study of music and sound. Um, it, uh, let's say, as a discipline, it was in the, in the 19th century called comparative musicology. Then uh, the name ethnomusicology was given in the 1950s in the United States. But on the other hand, if you have a different type of history, for example, a decolonial history, uh, the interest of the relationship between, you know, let's say, how different uh, peoples sounded in different places Uh, different historical moments was a central element that you can find, for example, in the colonial archives. So you also have a history in Latin America itself, for example, of documentation within the chronicles, or of, in the 19th century, scientists sending materials to archives in Europe and the United States um, to be able to document those musics. That's great. We will come back to this issue. But before, I want to ask you a little bit about your own trajectory. How did you enter this field of ethnomusicology and how does it relate to your interest in Latin America? Okay. I entered because my neighbor and piano teacher, when I was seven years old, became an ethnomusicologist. At that time <laughs> in Venezuela, um, and this was the 1970s, there was a degree in ethnomusicology uh, sponsored by UNESCO. And she went and did it and came back. And so from the very start, she started uh, getting me interested in this field. That's so funny. And, and how important is for your work being Colombian and, and relate to the region? I think very, very important. I think without her influence, her name was Mario, is Mario Eugenia Londoño. I would not perhaps have become an ethnomusicologist. I would have continued maybe to be a pianist or a, a musician of some other sort. But it allowed me, for example, to relate. I love Latin American literature. So it allowed me when I was young to relate the books I was reading, like Carpentier and um, other authors that I was reading to the work 
of documenting music and thinking about music from Latin America. Uh, at the same time that I was studying Western classical music, which is how you get trained in an instrument. You know. um, and what brought you to Columbia University? What have you found at Columbia that allows you to do the type of work that you like? Right. So I think Columbia University has given me uh, the opportunity, on the one hand, of uh, time for research, uh, which is very important because in Colombia, uh, I worked mostly in cultural policy. I did not work in an uh, academic environment. I learned a lot from working in the Ministry of Culture in Colombia in 2003, but at the same time, it was uh, a work that leaves you very little time to research. So it has allowed me to explore the research in whatever way I can, and I have learned a lot from both colleagues and students. This is a very diverse department. It has composers, it has musicologists, it has ethnomusicologists, it has music theorists, and the conversations with my colleagues have been instrumental, also the conversations across departments. So you graduated from your PhD, you went back to work at Columbia in on cultural policy, and then you came back to the U.S. to do research. Is that your trajectory? Exactly. If we, if we want to sum it up, I never wanted to uh, work in the United States, so I finished my Ph.D. in Indiana University, returned. Uh, but w way back then, it was very difficult to get a job in a, with a Ph.D. in ethnomusicology. For the music departments, I was too much of an anthropologist or a cultural studies person, and for the anthropology departments, initially or a little later, they, you know, they, uh, I, I had very, I have very good working relations with them. Uh, I did not have an anthropology degree like our requirements, so I was stuck in the middle. That is no longer true. Uh, the generation that now is going back has ample spaces of working in Colombia, but the place that did open up a, spl a place for me was the Ministry of Culture. That's interesting. And so given your experience both there and here, what type of dialogues can you establish from Columbia University with your colleagues in the region? Do you think it's are different from the type of dialogues that you would be able to establish had you been if you were working at the university in Colombia? Uh, that's a, a very good question. I think throughout uh, you know my whole career that f the form of the dialogue has been changing. And it has been changing because a series of uh, Latin American area studies of popular music have consolidated. There's, there's uh, an international association for the study of popular music in Latin America. The masters in musicology have grown in the past five years. If it's very new, right? So all that is giving new possibilities of interaction uh, between North and South, but they just need to be forged. Uh, I think more strongly than ever before. I mean, I've read a couple of pieces, you know, a piece and, and, and a book that you, you were kind enough to pass to me. And, and, and the article that you wrote on Puerto Rico would call my attention given the legacy of Maria and, you know, all that Puerto Rico has been going through in the last few years really takes a, a starting point that was unusual for me. I haven't thought about it before, which is the connection between food and sound. I think you make reference to the work of Claude Levi-Strauss. So how do you see this connection between food and sound in Latin America more generally? And is it the same with Puerto Rico, giving Puerto Rico very unique status that is politically a unit of the United States effectively, but culturally and historically is part of Latin America? Yeah. Okay, well, that's an article that I wrote initially for a conference that was organized by the Music Conservatory in Puerto Rico as a response to Hurricane Maria. 
So I thought I would bring together my uh, work on environmental science and, you know, the music and the environment, basically, and uh, which is my interest, uh, acoustic ecologies and music and sound. And one of the things that uh, brought it together ever since I began going to Puerto Rico, mostly for personal reasons, um, it was very astounding to me how Puerto Rico had a colonialism by control of food. Uh, you know, they did away with a lot of the United States, uh, took Walmart, you know, all these very, very big supermarkets and did away with local food pr production. And uh, I come from Latin America where in every little corner you have a little cafe in which you sit and talk. And for me, it was very amazing to go to the small towns and not find the institution of the small cafe. And so I, when, when the hurricane happened, and I had to write this paper, I, you know, began to see uh, literature that I had been reading for many years on sound and the environment, particularly Levi-Strauss, under a new light. And it had to do with the, uh, the, lack, the, the relationship with resources and with the agro-industrial production of food and the supermarket. And the fact that sound and uh, culinary arts are arts of um, digestion. You sort of, you know, you, you use those sounds. Those sounds go into your body. The food goes into your body. You transform them through your body and through your sensorial experience. And so I sort of build on that, build on Levi-Strauss, basically, in that article. In Latin America, of course, salsa music, they have written a lot about the relationship between um, food and a lot of the Caribbeans and music and a lot of the Caribbeans have written about that. But do you see it, I mean, you started with the contrast between Puerto Rico and its, co its colonial experience and having it deprived of the cafes. Although, I mean, I think there yes. are cafes in like the Viejo San Juan. I mean, there are parts where there are cafes. Yes, of course. But it, you're right. The cafe, it's like the typical Latin American experience. And it's not just food, but also meeting. And, you know, it's a... Right. And so how do you see the contrast between Puerto Rico and, and your and the rest of Latin America, the way you put it, or even Colombia so, as so, your ex yeah, own experience. I'm not experience. a specialist in Puerto Rico, so I want to clarify that to the audience. I'm just beginning to do you know, some work there, but I, I'm not a specialist. But for me, it has been a learning experience to go to Puerto Rico and understand the um, impressive imprint of the colonial dimension of Puerto Rico. I come from a country with, uh, you know, I have written about violence and music in Colombia for many, uh, for, for several years now. My first book was about armed conflict and cultural policy. A uh, recent uh, paper was about silence and uh, as a weapon of torture, but used both. And that was more uh, researching uh, the United States history of solitary confinement. But so what for me is, Puerto Rico has taught me is a, no, uh, a dimension of colonialism that permeates the everyday in a way that is absolutely drastic. And so that's very different from the political experience that I had had in Colombia and its relationship to the arts. And I am not a specialist in the subject. I learn about it every day, but it is, uh, the, it is um, a, a very drastic colonial situation imposed by the United States. How do you think of the colonial situation of Colombia, which is different, but, you know, I mean, you've studied colonial Colombia in the, in the Spanish oh, era. Right. Uh, and I was going to talk about 
and I, I, I'm going to ask you about that, but there's also there uh, an imposition and a change of food habits and, you know, can, can you travel from what you've seen in Puerto Rico now to imagine the colonial experience of Colombia right. centuries ago? Right. So I, I published a book about the 19th century. Um, it took me a very long time because I was not a f trained historian. It took me 14 years to work on that book. Um, I use a very evident archive. I use what is largely a published <coughs> archive. Um, and, uh, but nobody had addressed it from the point of view of listening to the archive. Uh, so what is interesting to me is, and I didn't, in that book I did not explore the connection with food. What I explored and what I did find was the connection between, which was a surprise to me. I was trying to do an intellectual history of how to think about folklore and about orality in the history of, of Colombia. And um, what I actually, so I wanted to trace an intellectual history of how the very idea of orality emerged. Uh, but I, I, I found one thing that was surprising to me that uh, it was not only important in forging the idea of culture, you know, thinking about diversity and thinking about uh, really how do indigenous people sound, how do Afro-descendants sound, and how do you codify their sound? Is it proper modes of sounding? Is it something that we're not going to include because they sound like animals, so then we're not going to include them? So nature ended up being a category that I had to take into account because um, music, uh, the, the, the river sounded. They did not know how to reclassify people in the change from the colonial to the post-colonial, let's say, in, after the wars of independence in the 19th century. So you had to come up with an idea of culture that allowed you to classify them in different regions as producers of certain types of culture. But if you didn't sing in the proper way, and if you sounded more like an animal, like they think, they thought, for example, that the boat rowers of the Magdalena River sounded like animals, then that did not count as folklore. So that doesn't make it into music history. That makes it into these wild sounds of these peoples. And that's very common in the colonial archive. So uh, that's fascinating. And, and I found your book incredible. And I have two questions that are related to what you just said. One is you study sounds before recording of sounds and music before recording of music. So, and, and we were talking about the, the, the recording of this podcast. How does your experience help us understand the importance of technology for, te for ethnomusicology and, and how to study before recording? The archive I work with for the 19th century book um, is an archive that is written. Right. So basically for me it was a surprise. I found a lot of sonorities that I was really not looking for. The book was originally about the 1940s, and I began to write all these, find all these references to all these sonorities. So that took me to the 19th century. Um, so in a way, it has to do with that the turn towards a sensory history and a sensory anthropology, and this question about how to perceive and to listen has opened up a, an archive in ways that before... Maybe we were not so sensitive to it. So can you give us an example of how you listen to something that you couldn't listen to? So, for example, when I found uh, the way Alexander von Humboldt describes the bogas of the Magdalena River. It's an incredible description. Or the way he describes 
the sounds of nature in the Orinoco, you know, and and the Orinoco River. Uh, it's very powerful. Or the way, for example, uh, Candelario Obeso, who was an Afro-descendant poet and philologist, uh, the uh, Colombian of the 19th century, he wrote a small book called Cantos Populares de Mi Tierra, and the book is very sensitive, the way the words are written to the sonorous uh, way that peoples of the Caribbean speak, of the Colombian Caribbean. So all these dimensions, you see these people struggling to put sound in the technology of the written word, which is what they had. It's the same with a microphone. A microphone can only capture a certain dimension of my voice. It will not be the same as my spoken voice here. And if I move my mouth away from this <laughs> microphone, you know, then you will hear it completely differently. So in a way, we are always adjusting sounds to technologies. And my experience as an ethnographer where I had to learn, you know, how to use microphones in the fields uh, made me think, oh, these people are using the same, you know, the written technology in the same way, you know. Um, and that's exactly what led me to that book. That's great. Uh, and, and my second question is more on the substance of the book and, and thinking on, you know, maybe we're living in the U.S. and the con conventional wisdom understands this kind of artificial, artificial division between culture and nature and humans producing culture and modifying natures. And it also, uh, most people perceive that humans are the holders of rights, but there's a discussion whether nature or non-human entities are also the holders of rights. Um, there's many scholars and activists that take issue with, you know, that they should be the holders of rights. There's even constitutions such as the Bolivian and Ecuadorian constitutions that grant rights to nature, although the governments might not enforce those rights right. adequately. So, I mean, this is a, 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 the, the, the human versus non-human rights. It's a very, very important discussion nowadays. And it's also a discussion that has a very strong historical legacy. So if we need to think about the peoples who, of who is today Latin American, or American for that matter, really there was a, a philosophical debate about whether the indigenous peoples were humans or not. There's the famous uh, debate between Bartolomé de las Casas and Juan Sepúlveda, all the Afro-descendants that were forced into slavery in the Americas North and South were considered property and not human or three-fifths human in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Constitution originally. So uh, all these, you know, it brings me to the to the comparison that you made about the, the vocalization of the boat road rowers in the Magdalena River. Are they humans? Are they not humans? Um, so what can you say to us about this connection between nature, humans, and sound, when something is sound, when something is, is music, how culturally defined or contextually defined is this, when do we consider rivers, volcanoes, fires, wind, all these sounds, music, when we consider those sounds, how can you explain us to understand sonority in different contexts? Right. So that's become a very big topic in music studies. It's a central part of what's called sound studies. And in the history of anthropology of music, it's also an ethnomusicology, it's also very central. So I'm going to boil down the, the answer to the question. So in the book, in the 19th century book, what was interesting to me is that the sound of the voice, I only deal with the sound of the voice because there were so many sonorities. Uh, could emanate from different types of living entities, depending on 
who was considering that entity. So for, let's say, of course, I have a written archive that reports from Western ears about how, what indigenous people said, but they often said, oh, they're singing to the moon and they're having a feast. You know, the animals are singing to the moon or are having a feast. So this question of the who is able to teach you a sound or a music, uh, it can be a non-human entity, uh, call it whatever you call it, call it an animal or call it a spirit or call it in different ways. So that appears in the archive. So already the colonial archive problematizes um, what is the colonial music itself? How do we consider whose, whose music we're talking about in the historical colonial era in Latin America and the Caribbean? A second di dimension then that has emerged is that, let's say the history of music departments from the 19th century to the present, and this is in Latin America and the Caribbean as well as here, conservatories teach a certain type of music. Even just allowing, which is usually Western classical music, even just allowing the performance of popular musics or of traditional musics within the conservatory has been a struggle, both in Latin America and the Caribbean and, and here to a certain <laughs> extent. It's, it's, there's a long history about that. So uh, undoing the boundaries of what counts as music and what doesn't is, of course, a, a long legacy of the avant-garde, you know, but it also puts into history the question of uh, what counts as music for whom? Can non-human sounds count as music for different indigenous peoples and Afro-descendant peoples? And they frequently do. So that's a question that, of course, is emerging right now with a tremendous strength. There's a lot of publications about that in the in ethnomusicology, and it's also opening up the field to what are called sound studies. Uh, in a way, the third world, if we want to use that outdated term, is always about orality. You know, these people speak but don't write, right? And so if you put it from the perspective of sound, and, uh, you know, recent publications have worked on this, you can talk about the fact that, well, then sound studies was always a priori, something that characterized, you know, thinking about, about sound and in sound, um, different parts of the world, and Latin America and the Caribbean being one of them. Also, uh, I just wanted to call out attention that Latin American and Caribbean modes of theorizing the area, uh, um, regional studies, like how to think about the Caribbean, orality, for, for example, is central to glissand, music is central to carpentier, um, it's central to a lot of writers from the Indian region as well. So you can find these very dispersed theorizations about the sonority of the region. Uh, in different types of writings, in different types of productions. Um, so even though it appears as something new, codified as sound studies, it's been very present in the, in the region as a mode of thinking about the region. Thank you. This is a great answer, and it, it's, it's going to bring me to push you beyond ethnomusicology in what do you think you had learned that can talk more broadly about the relationship between humans and non-humans beyond sound and music from your work? Uh, well, w I think one of the most important things is that often this philosophical argument of who counts as human, do indigenous people count as human, just, you know, what about slavery? Uh, in the history of Colombia, at least, got resolved juridically. That is, for example, indigenous peoples will not have citizenship, uh, and they will be un under the care of missionaries until they you know, uh, in the 1980s revolted and said, no, we, we want to take care of our own institutions and our own directives. 
So that relationship between they can't speak for themselves and to and the political organization of indigenous movements and yes, we can speak for ourselves um, <clears throat> is very strong and it's a long history. The same as other groups. So the emergence, for example, of indigenous filmmaking uh, all throughout Latin America organized as collectives since at least the 1980s is, you know, in different parts, but more and more even so is really important. Film produced by themselves or in collaboration. And um, I think that's a very, very important development in the sense it's not just, it's organizing the sonorous presence in the public sphere in the ways that uh, they would like to organizing. In that sense, audiovisual production is a tremendous tool. And, and you think they include nature in a way that's different from... Yes, I think it means that you talk about rights and nature in a different way. And it's not, so it's not only the juridical sphere that you talk about, the constitutions. I think what we have is big debates. So for example, when you go, when we went and tried to, you know, began this film, I didn't, other people, you know, are the ones that have participated mostly with the collective that I work. But... Uh, Uh, when we were there, one of the initial things that happens is that the equipment that arrives needs to be incorporated into the domain that already exists. It's a very different conception of technology. It's not that they're acquiring something new. It's that something that has already been present materializes. And so you have to give it a realm. Um, under what spirit would it exist? What would be the protective realm for this? So you uh, have like a protective spirit for the equipment. Yes, exactly. So nothing exists <laughs> outside a network of relations. It's very much about networks of relations. And uh, when you participate in that type, you, you become involved in such a network of relations. That's so um, it transforms the way that... So I think it would be really important to have a stronger dialogue between the people that are working in the areas of, um, let's say, audiovisual production or arts and uh, the types of aliases that, for example, in Brazil are happening between artists and indigenous peoples, which uh, our colleague Els Lagro in Brazil works on, these types of things, uh, and a dialogue with political scientists and people that have worked on the legal and juridical side of things, uh, because I think both are equally important to the transformation of the public sphere, if we want to use so that term. So this actually brings me to my <clears throat> next two questions. One is this idea that you had to convene a group of Columbia scholars working on nature, on art, and on politics, you know, trying to establish exactly the connections that you have uh, just described. What do you expect of this collective endeavor? Uh, I contacted Vicky, and then we formed this group <laughs> and contacted two more colleagues, um, Uh, Alex Albero in uh, arts and uh, Ron Gregg in film uh, and several graduate students to work on this collective on environmental justice, belief systems, and uh, aesthetics. In Latin America, we have a colleague in Brazil too, Els Lagro, and our idea is to create a broader network of uh, conversations and interactions across fields where we usually don't meet. Uh, one of the things that I think... Uh, Sometimes the political science, uh, scientists are in one place, the people that work in music and arts are in another, the people that work in science are in another. And one of the things of environmental justice and, uh, is that it is bringing types of conversations between science and the arts and, 
and let's say social studies or, or political science in a way that we have um, not attended to before and that we need to address. So I guess my hope for the group is that at least we engage in a conversation and that the different things and workshops and uh, events that we organize allow us to cross uh, boundaries that uh, we haven't crossed before. And hopefully beyond that, that we create a working group that uh, maybe has some sort of um, uh, effects in the long run. Speaking of effects, <clears throat> one issue that I think is, is certainly crucial for, for, my, for me and for a lot of people working on these issues from the standpoint of political science <clears throat> is uh, the current experience of the Amazon, the uncontrolled fires on the Amazon, uh, which you know, had been linked to, to intentional deforestation, uh, to allow cattle ranching and agriculture in Brazil, which have expanded to neighboring countries and have created like an international tragedy. Um, in this context, it's interesting, you know, many people have assigned uh, President of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, a lot of blame because he expressly have uh, weakened the bureaucracies in charge of enforcing, you know, uh, limits to the prevent the deforestation. Um, and he has also said really, you know, what's important is economic development. This is a resilient issue. We, you know, the, the, the nature is not as important to economic development. Um, and that has generated a lot of pushback in the international community, um, especially from European countries like Germany, France, and Norway. They have suspended the funds that they normally send to Brazil for the sustainability of the Amazon. Macron, the president of France, has even threatened to, uh, to challenge the current conversations between the European Union and the Mercosur on trade, since Brazil is uh, the main partner of the Mercosur trade agreement. So there seems to be a lot going on in the international sphere. But I'm more interested in trying to move uh, the attention to the local sphere, to what's going on on the ground. Uh, you know, in the in the communities that are both, you know, uh, being affected by, you know, the economic gain uh, that produce. I mean, a lot of times uh, deforestation is people who are colonizing and, and then it's taken over by big agribusiness. So it's not always uh, such a, an organized strategy, although sometimes it is a pretty organized strategy. And the local, you know, native population or an indigenous populations who live there, there, who suffer the cost of the fire, the pain, the destruction, the loss of their culture, of, you know, all the non-human entities to which they are connected. So from your perspective as an ethnomusicologist and as an anthropologist, as someone who works at this level of locality, what can you tell us about the experience of the Amazon destruction? So I, I, I don't do field work in the Amazon, so I'll respond in a very general way. Also, uh, we do have uh, two people in our group that we just yeah. mentioned, which are Els Lagro and a graduate student, Maria Fantinato, who are working, uh, doing field work there. In general, I think one of the things that is very much needed is to create listening spaces for the local groups and what their activism is and what their demands are. Uh, because although they appear in the news, sometimes you only hear about them through social media or through a type of sharing that uh, doesn't make it to the foreground of the news. So it's not only about limiting rights of the Brazilian government, it's also about 
how to uh, highlight the networks of resistance from the indigenous groups themselves and their aliases uh, throughout Brazil and throughout the Americas. One very important thing I was talking to Elsa Lagro yesterday is that uh, this destruction of the Amazon doesn't come as an isolated event. One of the important linkages that they're making is, for example, the destruction of the public university. Um, if you remember, if we're talking about fires last year, the Museo Nacional also burned. Yes. And it had many of co anthropological colleagues work there. And it's a major destruction. So there's been um, all these um, events that hum somehow uh, coalesce to create a big political transformation that uh, requires, in a way, its own very um, reorganization of the sphere of resistance at the same time, because it happens at so many levels. So again, what I think is important is the connection between this environmental justice and, for example, the protection of the university at the public sphere, the access to education, and these other dimensions that keep connecting the way humans and non-humans are related, but not just thinking about it in a broad level. This is not just a transformation that happens in the Amazon itself, although that's a really important element. This is something that, uh, that in its interrelationships affect many, affects many dimensions of how we work in our everyday lives. And so I think it's important to envision the dimension of all this in those interrelationships and interconnections. And maybe, um, you know, uh, these audiovisual productions produced by indigenous people also bring a conversation um, and a level of conversation that it would be nice to be able to highlight here at Columbia University. And we hope that we can highlight it here through uh, showing some of those films and bringing some of those people through our group in the future. Okay, thank you very much, Ana Maria. It's been a pleasure to, go, to talk to you and to have you as our first guest. Thank you so much for inviting me. Our show is produced by Stephen Calabria from FM and AM Productions. Our music was produced by Manuel Garcia Orozco, who is pursuing his PhD in the music department at Columbia University. Check out the Institute for Latin American Studies at Columbia University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And tune in to our next episode featuring Daniel Alarcón, author, journalist, and professor of broadcast journalism at Columbia University. Goodbye.